Paul writes in chapter 1 of Philippians, verses 9 through 11, he says, And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best. And then there's an implied so that. So that you may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, which will lead, implied, to the glory and praise of God. I want to focus on that first and then uh, move on to the second part of the, to the next section in verses 12 through 26. So Paul is praying for the Philippians. He's praying that their love would abound more and more in knowledge and in depth of insight so that they may be able to discern what is best. To be able to think clearly and figure out what is best for them to do. To figure out the best way to live and honor Jesus so that they are maximally filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ so that they may bring honor and praise to God in Christ. I think Paul's prayer is an interpretive key for the rest of the book of Philippians. I think what Paul is doing in the rest of the book is giving us examples of what it looks like to have a love that abounds more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. That's the love he's calling them to, and he's giving them examples of it in the rest of the book. So what does it look like to have a wise, knowledgeable, insightful love? And how does that shape our decisions so that we live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Paul talks about a love that abounds in knowledge and depth of insight. That first word, knowledge, is a word that refers to spiritual knowledge. It's the knowledge that comes from knowing God's character, God's purpose, God's will, who God is, what God does, why he does it. It's the knowledge that comes from being soaked and marinating in the scriptures and allowing them to shape our minds, our thinking. That second word, uh, depth of insight, it's one word depth, but in Greek, depth of insight has to do with a kind of a moral perception and a common sense. It's the ability to, to know the right action in a given situation in the midst of a competing set of, of possible decisions, possible options. Okay? When you have love that abounds in knowledge and depth of insight, you have the ability to distinguish the things that really matter. Knowledgeable, insightful love enables you to distinguish the things that really matter amongst all of the possible options you have in your life. And we live in a world that's awash in options. And not all those options, options are good for us or best for us. So what really matters? How do we distinguish between all of them to suss out, to discern what, what's, what really matters? That's Paul's prayer. Now, it raises a question for us. Paul's prayer raises a question for us. Why doesn't Paul just pray that, you know, why does he pray that their love would abound in knowledge and depth of insight? Why doesn't he just pray that they would have knowledge and depth of insight? Or why doesn't he just pray that they would make really wise, really smart decisions? Why does he root it in love? I think it's because that's what Jesus does. Jesus asked a question. Teacher, 
What is the greatest commandment, first and greatest commandment? And Jesus answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus continues, upon these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Upon these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. What Jesus is saying is that all of the Old Testament, and in fact all of the New Testament as well, is rooted in these two commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Loving God and loving others rightly is what really matters. This is what Paul's prayer is all about. Now, part of what that implies, what Paul's implying in his letter, in his prayer, is that the way we think about love the way we often think about love is not the way, always the way that God understands uh, love. God's love is not mushy or sentimental. It's not soft. It's not passive. It doesn't, it's not simply tolerant of everything. It's, it's not willing to overlook any behavior. That's not love. You know, loving parents don't let their kids go out and play in traffic. Loving friends don't just leave you making stupid, destructive decisions. They intervene. They try to pull you out. The love, you know, God's love is, God does love us. He loves us exactly the way we are. He loves us without condition. It's unconditional, without qualifiers. He loves us even when we're his enemies. But all of us, at least at times, have foolish thoughts, we have prideful attitudes, we engage in behaviors that are destructive to us or to others. So sometimes God's love means disciplining us. Sometimes it means convicting us of truth even when facing that truth hurts. God loves us as we are. But what he wants for us is to bring about our healing and our wholeness so that we experience life to the fullness. And sometimes that means confronting us. It means confronting us as individuals and confronting us as a community. It means that uh, what we sometimes want isn't what, it means that we have to acknowledge sometimes what we want isn't what's really best for us. And Paul is saying, I want you to love with a love that, that is knowledgeable, that has knowledge and depth of insight so that you can love in a way that's truly love. He wants them to, to grow in a kind of love that helps them become more like Jesus in character and in speech and in action. That's a lot of what chapter 2 of Philippians is about. Now, if they're grounded in their ability to show the kind of love for one another that is grounded in the knowledge of God and God's ways, that will help them to pick out from a variety of competing options and choose what's best. And what Paul means by what's best is really knowing and loving and following Jesus. That's what chapter 3 of Philippians is about. Christ is what's best. Knowing Christ is what's best. So loving one another 
should include helping one another really know Jesus and follow Jesus and grow in Jesus. Loving one another means helping one another stay connected to Christ, not distracted by false doctrines or sinful behaviors, not, not falling away, not just kind of moving on. It means helping us stay connected. Paul knows that what you love and value most affects, determines really who you are, what you become. He wants them to love Jesus, to value what Jesus loves. As they do that, they will become more and more and more like Jesus. They'll do what Jesus does in their character. They will become more pure and in their reputation before others, they will be seen as blameless. So Paul says, I pray that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best so that you will be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. That word pure is a word that probably comes from two Greek words, sun, the, the word son and the, word, the verb to judge. And the idea behind it is that you will, be, you will be able to be judged by the light of the sun. In that day, people would make pottery, dishes, vases, whatever, and it was, thin, it was beautiful, but it was very thin, light. And that meant that when it was drying, it would often um, develop little cracks. And if you were a dishonest, kind of greedy merchant, you might take that pottery and you would fill the cracks with wax. And then you would put the lacquer over it that would cover the wax and cover over the, the crack. You wouldn't know the crack was there unless you took that pottery, that dish, that vase, and you'd hold it up to the light of sun, the sun, you'd turn it around, you look at it closely, and it was the sun that would show whether there were light, whether there were cracks underneath the wax and the lacquer. What Paul is saying is there, is here is that he wants us to be pure, people without wax, people without, with no hidden cracks in our lives, things that will make us weak, that will make us fall under pressure. He wants us to, to have integrity, wholeness, not just cover up stuff, but, but actually have integrity, have wholeness, so that we can stand up. He also wants them to be blameless. Not, that doesn't mean sinless, but it means people who are known to be trustworthy without hidden cracks. He wants to be people who, uh, who reflect God's character well. You may remember that when Jesus was in the trial, uh, after his arrest, people brought all kinds of charges against them, but the charges really couldn't hold water because Jesus was without cracks in his character. He was blameless in his reputation before others. So even when people tried to bring charges against him, they just didn't stick. They couldn't hold water. Paul is saying that's the kind of people we want to be, people who even when people bring false charges against us, it becomes clear that they don't hold water. We are people who are known to be trustworthy, true, honest in our dealings, sincere in our care and concern and love for other people. When we're people like that who are pure in character, no hidden cracks, and we have a good reputation, then what happens is that we're filled with the fruit of righteousness, and that righteousness becomes known. 
And when it becomes known, people look at it and say, okay, this is because God is at work in them. So what happens is we're filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, which means that we are people known to have ethical and moral character, people who are good and do good. We do service and engage in social justice, and that brings great honor and glory to God. We become God-revealing, God-honoring. Jesus says in Matthew 5, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. It's that idea. They see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. They, see your, they recognize your good reputation and they glorify your God, Father in heaven. That's what Paul wants for them. People who live such lives that when people look at them, they have to, they're, they're, they're just drawn to give glory to God in heaven. Now, this is Paul's prayer. This is all of what Paul is praying in his prayer. Now, I want us to read chapter 1 of Philippians 12 through 26. It's on page 830, 831 in your pew Bibles. I think this is kind of like a case study for what Paul's prayer looks like in real life. Okay? So read with me chapter, chapter 1, starting with verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. What has happened to me means his imprisonment. That what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, not in spite of my chains, and because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition not sincerely, supposing that they can store up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in this body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. 
I desire to be with Christ, to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you, again, your boasting in Christ will abound on account of me. Your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Paul's in prison, and like, like all prisons, it's rough in there. And the Philippians are worried about him. Is he okay? How is he? What, is, he is he doing okay? They take up an offering to, uh, for Paul's care during his imprisonment, stuff to pay for his food, his basic food, his hygiene, maybe a little bit of medical care if he needs it. They take up this offering. They send a guy named Epaphroditus to, to Paul. And, Paul, and Epaphroditus' charge is to find out how Paul is doing and to help Paul in whatever way he can. And, Paul, and the Apostle Paul talks about Epaphroditus again uh, in chapter 2. They want Paul to be released from prison. That's what they're praying for. They're just praying, Lord, save him, deliver him, get him released. In their mind, the best thing by far would be for Paul to be released and get out of Rome or Caesarea or wherever he is and never to return. And you think that Paul, that's also what Paul would want. He'd want to get released and get out of town. But Paul says to the Philippians, listen, I know you love me. I want your love for me to abound in knowledge and depth of insight so that you can discern what is best. And right now, what is best is for me to be in prison. Why? Because in prison, things are happening that wouldn't happen any other way. He's not saying that being in prison is a good thing in and of itself. He's saying that God is using it to bring about something good. Paul is not saying that suffering is good. He's not saying that God brings suffering in and of itself. Suffering is not a good thing. What he's saying is that God is using a bad thing, an evil thing, to bring about a good thing. When Jesus went to the cross, he suffered. That suffering was not a good thing. But God used that suffering on the cross to bring about the redemption of the world. And Paul is saying, I'm experiencing a little bit of that. God is using my suffering, suffering to bring about redemption. He's saying, because of my change, the gospel is advancing. It's advancing. He's saying that throughout the whole palace guard, everyone be, and everyone and, and everywhere else, people know that my imprisonment is for Jesus. It's about Jesus. Paul is in prison. He's changed the guards. They're with him all the time. And as, he, as they're with him, you know, different rotations of guards, he's telling them about Jesus. He's telling them about who Jesus is what Jesus has done, what Jesus is like. They're hearing about a God who loves them so much that he died for them, and they're thinking to themselves, there is no God that we know that loves people enough to die for them. Who is this God? They're watching the way Paul handles the pressure, the discomfort, the pain of being in prison, and they're saying, 
How is he holding up like this? Why is he so full of joy? There's something different about him. There's a peace in him that we do not understand. Maybe what he's saying is really true. Maybe there is a God who loves like the God Jesus. Paul talks about this God Jesus. And they start to get a yearning in their own hearts and minds and souls, a longing to know this God. They're coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And when they leave their rotation with Paul, they go out and tell their friends, neighbors, family that, 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 have you heard about this God, Jesus? The gospel is advancing. Paul also says, because of my chains, not in spite of them, but because of them, most of the brothers and sisters become more confident in the Lord. What's happening is that Paul's example of courage and faith has fueled their courage and faith, and as a result, they become bold, much more bold, to proclaim the gospel. The church around Paul, where he is, they are becoming much more bold to proclaim the gospel in a place where it's not safe to proclaim the gospel, but they don't care anymore because courage rubs off. Courage begets courage. Faith fuels faith. And so the church has become stronger on the inside and they're proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming Jesus much more boldly. Paul's in prison. Things are happening. And he's excited about them. Because he's excited, the people around him are getting excited about them too. Now he does say that, uh, that there are some people who are Preaching, not because of, that they're preaching out of envy, they're preaching out of rivalry, they're preaching out of selfish ambition, they're not preaching sincerely, they're preaching because they, they just want to kind of push Paul, so to speak, off his pedestal and take his place. You know, so we don't know who these critics are, we don't know what they're about, but we don't know because Paul doesn't say much about them. And the reason he doesn't say much about them is because he doesn't actually care. He doesn't really care. Why? Because the important thing, he says, the important thing, what really matters is that Christ is being preached. Christ is being proclaimed. So Paul says, I rejoice. That word rejoice or joy is used 14 times in this letter. Jews 14 times, Paul rejoices because the gospel is being preached. Christ is being known. The church is being strengthened. Let me ask you a question. What brings you joy? What makes you rejoice? And what robs you of joy? Paul's goal was to, was to glorify Jesus Christ and help people know and follow Jesus. His critics' goal was to promote themselves when a following of their own. But Paul is able to rejoice, not in the selfishness of his critics, not in the fact that he's suffering in and of itself. He's able to rejoice in the fact that Christ is being proclaimed. There's no envy in Paul's heart. 
It didn't matter to him that some were for him and others were against him. He just didn't care about that. All that mattered was that Christ was being proclaimed, that the gospel was advancing. So he says, I rejoice. And by implication, he's saying, I want you to rejoice with me. Don't be sad for me. Don't be sorry for me. Rejoice with me. Rejoice with me. The gospel is advancing. Christ is being proclaimed. Rejoice. Then he says, I know that through your prayers, that through your prayers, the Holy Spirit will be with me and that I will experience deliverance. I will not be ashamed. I will experience deliverance. That word deliverance is the word soterium, which is a word that's usually translated as salvation. Paul is saying, I know that through your prayers, I will experience salvation. I will stand up under the pressure. I will be able to proclaim Christ when I'm on trial. I will be able to make the case for Christ. Christ will be honored through my defense. I will be vindicated. Christ will be vindicated at my defense. I will experience deliverance. I know that through your prayers. So that raises another question. Is it really so? Is prayer really that important? I can tell you that Paul believed it. Paul prayed a lot. He believed that prayer mattered. His prayer for them, their prayer for him, he believed that prayer really matters. He believed that God heard those prayers and used them to transform people, to influence events, to shape history, to bring people to life. Do you believe that prayer really matters? God ordains the prayers of his people as a means through which to accomplish his purposes in the world. There are some things that God chooses not to do until his people pray. Throughout church history, periods of spiritual awakening and revival were initiated and sustained by movements of prayer. Samuel Chadwick wrote, Prayer turns ordinary mortals into men and women of power. It brings power. It brings fire. It brings rain. It brings God. Edward McKendry Bounds, Ian Bounds, wrote, Prayer breaks all bars, dissolves all chains, opens all prisons, and widens all straits by which God's people have been held. When the people of God pray, the chains fall off. The gates of hell break down. Because God is at work. Paul prays for the Philippians. He asks God to help them grow in knowledgeable, insightful love. He asks the Philippians to pray for him so that he will triumph under the trial that's before him. Prayer gives us 
access to the Holy Spirit's wisdom, the Spirit's presence and power, so that we can love right, hold firm, and stand strong in all circumstances and trials. I know that lots of us right now are facing really hard circumstances. We're under trial. Things have happened. Losses have come that can crush our souls if we're trying to bear up under them in our own strength. Here's the thing. We don't have to bear up under them in our own strength. We ought not to let one another bear under those kinds of things in their own strength. We're called by God to pray for one another. We need one another's prayers to be pure and blameless, to persevere in faith, to hold up strong and not fall under the pressure. We need one another's prayers to continue to bear spiritual fruit, to bring honor and glory to Christ. We need one another's prayers so that the life of Christ flows through our minds and hearts and souls, enables us to be people who stand up, hold firm, grow, and reveal the character of God, the character of Christ to all those around us. We need one another's prayers. Prayer really matters. Paul continues to say, now here's my situation. There are two possibilities. I'm either going to be released from prison or I'm going to be executed. Those are the only two possibilities, released or executed. He doesn't know. But what Paul says ultimately is that whether I'm released or whether I'm executed, either one is actually a win. It's a win. Whether he lives or dies, it's a win. If he lives, he lives for Christ. He continues doing what he's doing. If he dies, he departs to be with Christ. He says, for me to live is Christ, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. To live is Christ, or die is gain. Christ is everything to Paul. Christ is the center, Christ is the focus, Christ is the purpose, Christ is the ultimate meaning, Christ is the ultimate joy of his life. For to me, to live is Christ. So here's another question. How would you finish Paul's sentence? For to me, to live is what? What is life for you? We like that phrase, so to me to live is Christ and die is gain. It looks good on a coffee mug, right? But to live it, to actually live it out in real life, that's hard. Paul is showing them that it's possible for that to be true. He's praying for them that will not only be possible, but it really will be true in their lives. For to me, to live is Christ. Christ is what Paul really wants. 
whether he lives or dies doesn't really matter to him. Either way, he has Christ. And he's saying that Christ is more than enough for him. So he raises the question, which shall I choose? He says, depart and be with Christ is far better for me. You know, when I think about it, to, de- to be with Christ, depart, that's really, really the best thing. But then he says, but on the other hand, to stay for your progress in the faith is better for you. Now, in verse 12, when he says, you know, rejoice with, when he says that, you know, my, my imprisonment, my being in chains has served to advance the gospel. That word advance is the Greek word prokopen. Here in verse 25, when he talks about their progress in the faith, it's the same word, prokopen. He's saying, it's better for you. Better for your prokopen, for your advance or your progress in the faith if I remain. So I choose to remain. I think I'm going to remain. I think God is going to keep me here for the advancement of the gospel and for the advancement of your faith. What Paul is saying is what is best, whatever helps us to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whatever is best is what helps us truly love God and truly love other people. For Paul, this meant joyfully enduring imprisonment and using his chains to proclaim Christ and advance the gospel so that those so that he would reach those he would not be able to reach any other way. For Paul, he's willing to joyfully embrace his imprisonment because it helps the church around him to become stronger and more vibrant in faith. It's all about Jesus. For Paul, again, he's not saying that suffering is a good thing in and of itself. He's saying that it's not the last word. The last word for Paul is Jesus. So we all have decisions to make. Some of them are harder than others. But as we're making decisions, we're thinking about decisions we have to make. Here are three questions that that will help. Which decision will help me grow most in my love for Jesus? Which decision will give me the most opportunities to express the love of Jesus to others? Which decision will most enable me to help others grow in faith? Which decision ultimately will help me to become more like Jesus? Which decision will help me to let others become like Jesus? Which decision will advance the life of Jesus and those around me? Paul is absolutely committed to the advance of the gospel and the progress, the advance of the church. Everything about his life, his physical comfort, his, the opinions others have of him, his position with respect to the Roman authorities, the question of whether he lives or dies, all of that is molded by his commitment to the advancement of the gospel. And Paul expects that the Philippians, and he expects that we also will have the same perspective. Our progress and joy in the faith, he implies in verse 24, should, be like, should, be, should mirror his perspective, his commitment. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For to me, the really important thing is that Christ is proclaimed. And in this, I 
rejoice. May it be so for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, O Lord, that you are God with us. Thank you that you are worthy of all honor and glory and praise. Thank you that you are life and hope and joy and peace. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to know you. Pray, Lord, that you would help us know you as you really are. Pray, Lord, that you'd help us to walk with you and not allow anything to get in the way of being with you, knowing you, living like you. So, Lord, we ask that you would conform us to the character of Jesus. We pray that you'd help us to uh, be the people you've called us to be. We ask that you'd be revealed through us, revealed in us. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, who loved us and laid down his life for us that we might live. Amen. Amen. Thank you.